Uh, it's, it's probably worth pointing out no Anna on the show today. This is her birthday special. No, this is random but memorable in its purest form. In its longest cut. It's just you and me. Pure editing form, I think. Yeah. The most yeah. edited it can be when it's just you and me. Absolutely. So it's it's Anna's birthday this week? This week, yeah. Bah, 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 bah. I know. It's amazing. Happy birthday, Anna. We love you. You're not going to say anything? I don't know why there was a long pause there. I just... <laughs> You're not going to say shit? I mean, happy birthday, yeah. Yeah, there you go. Good. What a d- <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to Random Up Memorable, the podcast brought to you by 1Password. We're here to bring you lots of friendly security advice, a roundup of the latest security news, and some very special guests. And if you're enjoying the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. So it's going to be a bit of an interesting episode today because I think there is one subject that has basically dominated the security and privacy news. Yeah. Oh, it's that Amazon rolls out encryption for ring doorbells, right? (laughs) It is not. It's about the Pegasus spyware. There's loads of aspects to this. But I think the first one to talk about is the fact that there is a market for essentially completely invasive spyware. This is probably the worst piece of spyware that has ever been created. First of all, what it can do is pretty incredible in a horrible way. It can read your text messages. It can see what is on screen. It can locate you from GPS. It is like everything that you can do on your phone. And this this is for both iPhone and Android. The announcement of this caused Apple's stock price to fall by just over 2.5%. The ramifications of this are huge. And the fact that there is a company selling it to governments and saying that it is a you know only permitted for legitimate investigations into crime and terror doesn't make it better. <laughs> like, that doesn't reassure me whatsoever. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're darting all over the place. But to start, the fact that there is a market for this... I think is the first thing that honestly needs to be corrected at a global level. Oh, Matt, that's... No, I'm sorry. Like, that's never going to happen. Of course there's a market for this. And there always will be. As long as there are terrible governments out there looking to get the upper hand on their citizens, a market for this will exist. I don't think this can be solved from a technology point of view. There are always going to be pushes and shoves between the technology titans and the people who have software in order to break it. But, like, I think this can be a, a shutdown in trade, essentially. Oh, interesting. I see what you're saying. The company that sells this is called NSO Group, right? Which is a legit company, right? Like, let's be clear. This is not a black hat hacking group. This is made by a, an established, legit company. Yes. Yeah, this is a legitimate business. Using that term lightly because honestly they are not selling security software are they let's say let's say this is a legal company this is a legal entity that exists this is a legal company that is selling a spying tool that they say is only used for investigations into crime and terrorism the problem with that is that the report by the guardian here has essentially made that a complete work of fiction like if you look at the list of the types of people that were included. It's political opponents, it's reporters, it's Edward Snowden. The list of these are not crime and terrorism, it's people who the governments that this has been sold to, which there are quite a few governments on this list, including, you know, Mexico, Morocco, Rwanda, 
Saudi Arabia, Hungary, Italy, United Arab Emirates. Yeah. I don't think that a lid can be kept on this type of thing. And I think it's only a matter of time until the list of what I think is is 50,000 people who were on the list that The Guardian made public. I think it's only a matter of time until that list massively grows. It's very concerning. Yeah. This has been happening since 2016. And it's one of those things that I'm I'm incredulous that neither Google nor Apple were aware of this and had any way to stop it. Because it is like, it, while the, the company may be a legal, a legal entity... The software itself is malware. It infects your system and gives people complete remote control over your device. And the fact that something like this can exist and just not be known, I'm I'm genuinely surprised. Just given how like the fact that it's sold by by like a very publicly sold by a company, I, like that no one at either Apple or Google would be like, "Hey, should we look at this? Should we just like check out and see what these people are doing over here? Maybe buy a copy and and see what's up?" You know, when you're doing something as a company and Amnesty International are the ones who come <laughs> and say, like, this is awful <laughs> and, and look at this thing that's happened. You know you're not in the kind of business that is very moral, right? Like, Amnesty International yeah. are one of the ones who have done the forensic analysis. I didn't actually know Amnesty International did security forensics and, and stuff like that. But they examined 67 smartphones that were suspected of these attacks and 23 of those were successfully infected and 14 showed signs of attempted penetration and this works basically like a spear phishing attack it needs a link that infects a device it's kind of terrifying that that's all it needs yeah like like basically this can be delivered via text message once it's on your phone it doesn't matter what you use to communicate if you're using you know whatsapp or other secure means of communication this doesn't matter because it can record your screen it can record from your camera your microphone it can monitor your location it can do all these things and it doesn't matter what apps you use like none of that is safe once this is installed on your system yeah the fact that whatsapp is encrypted is just a null point once this thing is on your device yeah the thing that i i tend to like about when we do watchtower weekly is that we have advice for people <laughs> like we sort of you know we give our take on it and say like oh like you know this is what you should do in this situation like, i'm at a loss on this one i mean i told you what i would do if this happened to me which is oh, I, I would bury every single piece of technology and move to the countryside and be a beet farmer yeah yeah exactly yeah so i realize that's not something everyone can do but if it's an option to you you know that's sort of our advice at this point i think the real danger here is that as an individual that owns an iphone or an android device there is not a lot you can do apart from be very careful with text message links that you tap and stuff i do have to imagine there are some very busy conference rooms at apple and google right now trying to crack this one and, and figure out what what the response is going to be yeah it's a zero day vulnerability right like i wonder if they're aware of how this works yeah again i'm still i'm still incredulous that this that this has existed for so long zero day vulnerabilities are vulnerabilities companies don't know exist in their software and they're typically found by someone outside the software and if it's found by a nefarious actor Maybe they will be exploited. If it's found by someone with uh, altruistic intentions, they will inform the company about it uh, through proper channels. This is a zero-day vulnerability that has been exploited by a company selling software on their website for five or six years now. Just the fact that this didn't bubble up to anyone's radar, I, I can't believe it. Yeah, well, I, I think the the usage of this 
is part of the story, right? So the NSO group says it only sells spyware to vetted government bodies. The Guardian, again, they say there's about 51% of those that are intelligence agencies, 38% of those which are law enforcement agencies, and about 11% of military. But if you combine that with the fact of the type of people that have been leaked on this list, The Guardian, again, reporting that 50 people, or at least 50 people close to the Mexico's president, such as his wife, his children, his aides, his doctor, were included in the list of possible targets when he was an opposition politician. Holy. <laughs> Which, you know, the, the crime and terror veil quickly lifts when you realize the type of people that were on this. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. So this is certainly going to dominate the news cycle for the next few days. Like, if you haven't read up on this now, you can just go search for Pegasus Surveillance and you will find this. So let's add a footnote to, to Watchtower Weekly this week where we talk about Revil because it's Russia's most aggressive ransomware group and they've essentially disappeared. That's terrifying. So just days after President Biden demanded that President Vladimir Putin of Russia shut down ransomware group attacking American targets, the most aggressive of those groups suddenly went <laughs> offline. The mystery is kind of who made it happen. The group called Revil has been identified by US intelligence agencies as responsible for the attack on America's largest beef producer, who also took credit for the hack that affected thousands of business around the world. The The latest Revil attack actually led to Mr. Biden's ultimatum in a phone call. Mr. Biden said that we expect them to act when asked by a reporter later if he would take down the group's servers if Mr. Putin did not. The president simply said yes. And, you know, could he have done exactly that? Is that one possible explanation for the disappearance of this group's site on the dark web? Could they have literally just laid low a bit because the uh, the press around them is quite hyped at the moment you know gone was the publicly available happy blog the group maintained listing some of its victims and the group's earnings from digital extortion schemes internet security groups said that the custom-made sites i think of them as like virtual conference rooms where victims negotiated with revil over how much the ransom that you know they would have to pay and to get their data unlocked and and all of these disappeared and so did the infrastructure for making the payments too while the disappearance of the hackers online presence was celebrated by many who see ransomware as as the new scourge one mr biden has called a critical national security threat it left some of the group's targets in the lurch unable to pay the ransom to even get their data back Ugh. and get their businesses running yeah that's not great so there are you know three main theories about why revil suddenly disappeared one is that President Biden ordered the United States Cyber Command, working with domestic law enforcement agencies, including the FBI, to just bring the sites down, right? Cyber Command proved last year that they could do that, paralyzing a, a ransomware group that it feared might turn its skills to freezing up voter registrations or other election data. The second theory is that President Putin ordered the group's sites taken down. If so, that would be a gesture towards heeding Mr. Biden's warning. And in general terms, when the, the two leaders met, you know, that, that might have been a conversation. The third theory is that, you know, Revil decided the heat was too much and uh, took the sites down itself, avoiding itself being caught in the crossfire between America and Russian presidents. And that is what another Russian-based group, Darkside, did after the uh, ransomware attack on the Colonial Pipeline as well. The US company that, that had to shut down in May, the pipeline provides gasoline and jet fuel to much of the East Coast. And so... Yeah, it's it's basically caused a bit of a story between, you know, which which one of these three options do we possibly think it is? 
And will they be back? Yeah. I can't foresee Revil itself just closing up shop. I don't know why. That doesn't strike me as a thing would happen. Well, I think money, right? They've made too much of it. They want to make more. I think even if they broke into smaller groups or there's an after party to this thing, no doubt. Yeah. I'm skeptical that this was from the U.S. government. I'm less skeptical that the Russian government would do it. Like, I can see the Russian government doing this. Yeah, I mean, it's it's worth the headline kind of makes it seem like the people have disappeared when... <laughs> yes, which is very sensationalist and terrifying. Yeah, this isn't a elaborate spy story about disappearing people. It's about some target computers have been taken offline and... <laughs> The sites no longer exist. <laughs> right, right. So, Rue, yes, uh, jumping out of Watchtower Weekly, you had a guest interview this week. I did. I talked to Emma Boston, who is a, a developer at Spotify and host of a, of a podcast called Ladybug. And, and we talked all about interviewing this week, which was fun. It was a great talk. She's very cool and, and very smart. And I was glad that we had her on the show. Joining me on the show today is Emma Boston. Emma is a software engineer at Spotify and is one of the hosts of Ladybug, a women-led tech podcast for developers with a wonderful focus on making it in the tech industry. She is also the author of Decoding the Technical Interview Process, a guide to helping you nail your next technical interview. Welcome to the show, Emma. I'm really excited to have you here today. How are you? I'm fabulous. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to chat with you. How are you? I'm, you know what? No one ever asks and, and I'm doing well. So thank you. I appreciate that. Good. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about your background. Like how'd you get started in the industry? How did you decide to write a book? What does it cover? I began my programming journey actually in college, unlike many people who get started much younger, especially my family, because ironically, I'm a third generation IBMer. So I grew up knowing that computer science and engineering were things. And I said, absolutely not. I want to go to medical school. But I quickly realized I was terrible at all life sciences. So I switched to computer science in my sophomore year of college. And I graduated with a degree in computer science and business. After I graduated, I moved down to Austin, Texas, where I joined IBM as a front-end developer. And I pretty quickly realized I hate working on enterprise storage systems and I'm really terrible at web development. I actually learned Java throughout college and database and MIPS assembly language, more backend focused. And so when I got to IBM, I was like, oh, front end, it's easy. It's building web pages. And I quickly was overwhelmed. And so I had to study a lot of core computer science and web development concepts. And kind of throughout my time there, I'd been pretty unhappy working on enterprise storage. And so I knew I wanted to look for new opportunities. That's when I began studying for technical interviews. And I realized, even though I have a degree, there's so much I need to learn. So now I'm in my third company since I graduated in 2015. I've worked in Germany at LogMeIn, and I currently work at Spotify in Stockholm. And every time I've had to interview, it's been this like massive anxiety around technical interviews. And what I realized is during the pandemic, people were starting to lose their jobs. And I had just accepted an offer from Spotify, one of my dream companies, but I had also passed my Google technical interviews, which is quite the feat. And I realized many people could use the information that I had actually studied. What I noticed, though, is that many resources for studying for technical interviews are not beginner friendly, and they don't cover the entire process from start to finish. They're more back end focused, typically. So I really wanted to create a beginner friendly front end focused book. 
So that's where this book came from. It covers the overview of the interview process. So you're going to get tips and resources for having a great technical interview. I also have hand-drawn all of the diagrams in it for things like data structures and algorithms. So linked lists, adding and removing items from them, queue, stacks, you know, merge sort, quick sort. On top of that, we've got, you know, tips for take-home projects if you have to do a take-home project, as well as some examples that you can try. I also cover systems design, uh, as well as information for hiring managers and interviewers looking to improve. Wow. It almost sounds like a standardized test prep book to a degree. Is that is that accurate? Kind of, except I find it to be a little bit more approachable. I kind of wrote the resource that I wish that I had because I've read Cracking the Coding Interview twice. And while there are some really great concepts in there, I found it really unapproachable. And if I found it unapproachable coming from a computer science background, I can only imagine the stress other people have reading it. Like, yes, in a, in a sense, I wish I didn't have to write this book. Like, I wish interviews were not the way that they are today and they weren't like exams, but... Yeah. Fascinating. That's yeah, that's really neat. I love the idea of a, a different take on that type of course to make it to break it down. I think that one of the things that you know many people overlook is that there's so many different types of learners in the world and everyone sort of processes information differently. And being able to give people another aspect of presenting that information is is a really cool endeavor. Yeah. Uh, so you published the book early 2021, so earlier this year. What do you think the technical job market currently looks like in the COVID era? Are good opportunities more rare? Mm. Are they more accessible now that remote work is more common? Has it changed the way that that technical interviews and job interviews are conducted? Like, tell me your thoughts on this. So I believe that more companies will be offering remote work, if not switching into it completely. One thing Spotify did was a work from anywhere program where they said, hey, we recognize y'all have been working from home for over a year. And it's unfair to take that opportunity away from you. So we're allowing you to choose if you want to come to an office and you don't have to come in every day, but you will have a designated desk that you can go to, or you can work from almost anywhere within a geographic like locations, but like it's giving people the opportunity to go back to their home countries and live with their extended family. I hope we see more companies transition to doing that. But for those who do not provide that option, they run the risk of losing many employees. There was a couple articles circulating about how Apple said like they're going to require employees to come back to work. And that's unfortunate because working from home was great for employees with disabilities or those with families, you know, or other circumstances that make home work more comfortable. And so taking that away from them is, is really just, I don't think it's a good business decision. And... I think they're going to lose some employees, but I would say good opportunities are definitely more accessible now, now that we're kind of coming back from like the massive layoffs we were seeing when COVID first became like a global pandemic because, you know, many companies were not adapted to remote working, but now that it's a little bit more standardized, I think that the good opportunities are more accessible, but in terms of job interviews, I, I think there's less of a human connection virtually than an on-site visit where a candidate can you know see the office and get to talk to people face to face however there's also less pressure to take a full day off of work to actually conduct these interviews as a candidate so it's kind of a it's a trade-off yeah yeah i agree i mean we've been at one password we've been remote for like always we've we've never not been a remote company so being able to make that connection over the phone or over over a video call and stuff is something that we've always had in the before times you know we certainly we have a an office a centralized office in Toronto and we would try to fly people out there as often as possible for that in person like get to know you kind of thing because i think that that aspect is important 
important of having, you know, just even if it's just like taking a walk to a coffee shop, there's an aspect of that that is you create a connection that doesn't exist if your day is just, you know, blips of, of communication over chat or over calls and stuff like that. So well, there, there are actually two different types of trust as they pertain to different cultures. One is effective trust and the other is cognitive trust. I forget which is which definition wise, but the gist is. One is essentially your trust in your colleagues to get their job done and to do it well. The other is your trust in them as a human being. And, you know, in the U.S., it's very common mindset to, like, only work on the trust as it pertains to, like, business day to day. In many other cultures, they actually almost require you to build up this trust with people as other human beings in order to do your jobs more effectively. So I think... You know, remote work is great for many reasons, but I would say you've got to make the extra effort to build up the type of trust that you would get with a team member as another human being, especially if you're on a cross-cultural team. Yeah, absolutely. That's a that's a really strong point. So this is a pretty distilled question, but from your point of view, like, what do you think makes a really good candidate for a technical role? Like, what is something that an, an average hiring manager should really be looking for when screening candidates and when talking to people? So my personal opinion is I would much rather work with someone who is humble enough to admit when they don't know the answer to something, who takes the initiative to go out and try to problem solve, who knows when to ask questions and is curious about like expanding their knowledge. Someone who's a good communicator and someone who enjoys helping others learn and grow. I don't necessarily care about your technical expertise. Obviously, to some extent, it's going to be important, right? If you come into a web development job and you don't know the foundational components of web development, HTML, CSS, and JavaScript, it's going to be very hard for you to succeed. So once you have met that like baseline knowledge level, I definitely would much rather have someone on the team who enjoys learning and is a good communicator than someone who is kind of like an all-star tech person where they've gotten a substantial amount of technical knowledge, but they're not willing to kind of like educate or share that knowledge with anyone. I guess it kind of depends on the role though, right? Like if you're looking for like an architect or a staff engineer, you might want someone who is more vertically knowledgeable in an area but at the same time, someone in that role also needs to be a teacher to a certain extent. So Yeah, that's true. We tend to look at candidates. So we have six levels here at One Password. So junior developer, developer, senior developer, staff, senior staff, and then principal developer. And I I sort of have a really straightforward view of each of those roles and it's how much they can lift, right? So a junior developer needs help being lifted. A developer can lift themselves. A senior developer can lift themselves and others on their team. And you get to staff developer where they're lifting themselves, others on their team, and then others on other teams. Senior staff can now do all of those things plus lift, you know, different orgs in the company. And then a principal developer is someone who's lifting the industry, which is a very tall order, of course, but it's it's also sort of the, the top of the pile. And I think that when you talk to a candidate, if you could somehow find a way to assess their ability to lift it helps frame how they're how they're going to fit into the org. I think mm-hmm, definitely. All right, so let's let's dial it back to the application process a little bit. What are your go to tips for developers or anyone in a technical field when they're writing their CV, writing their resume, and applying for a new role? So I actually made an entire course on LinkedIn Learning called Creating a Tech Resume. So if you want like the in depth, like I go really in depth into the design of your resume in terms of like color palettes and analogous um, monochromatic, what's appropriate for what types of positions, font, things like that. And I talk a lot more about 
content structure, depending on your area of expertise. But a couple of just general tips that I think are really important are make sure you know the preferred format for the country you're applying for. It's not a huge issue if you're applying domestically. But for me personally, when I was looking to immigrate to a new country, I just assumed that they used the same format. And I come to find out many EU countries or European countries, they prefer the CV or the curriculum vitae format. So if you are applying for foreign roles, make sure that you're familiar with that. For example, like in the United States, it's not standard practice to add a photo to your resume. It can lead to implicit bias. But in many European countries, like in Germany, for example, when they use a CV, it's, it's almost required that you add a photo. So be aware of that. And if you're writing a resume, keep it to one page, unless you have 10 plus years of relevant experience, then use two. But resume is not meant to be a comprehensive overview to your job experience. And I see this mistake all the time where people will have five page resumes. And I can tell you right now, it's not getting read. A curriculum vitae is, it's a linear, essentially a history of your entire professional career. And that can span, you know, five pages. But, you know, if you're applying domestically in the United States, or other countries that require resumes, they're not using this format. So just be aware. And lastly, just like make sure you put the most important information at the top, likely like your contact information. I would put my work experience, my most recent relevant work experience at the top. If I've been out of college for, you know, several years and I've got some good experience, I would prioritize that over my education, especially because now I feel like education, it used to be, you know, college degrees, specifically like engineering or computer science were the most sought after paths to get into development. But that's not the case these days. Many people are self-taught. Many people go to boot camps and it's not necessarily the most important information. So if you've got relevant work experience, I would prioritize that. One of the things that I always get a bit of a kick out of when reading resumes or CVs from folks who are, you know, especially just out of college is that section of the resume that contains their summer jobs. Like I was the lifeguard at the local yeah. pool. Uh, like, I know. <laughs> I can already hear it in your voice, but like, what are your thoughts on that type of information being included? Because there's not a lot of meat on the bone otherwise, right? Yeah. So if you're a recent graduate or you're switching industries, you're not going to have relevant work experience necessarily, but you should not be putting things on your resume that are not relevant to the role. However, if you worked a part-time job that showcased your leadership, let's say you were like an assistant manager at a retail store, that could show your leadership skills. But if you you were just like, I don't know, playing bocce ball outside during the summer. You don't need to add that to your to your resume. Everything should be tangentially related. And if you don't have things that are necessarily related, you don't have any experience, maybe try to do some extra side projects, like take an online course, build a portfolio up. Portfolios are a great way to showcase your skills if you don't have relevant work experience. And one other quick statement is like, I see a lot of times, this is a huge mistake people make is, They've got these bullet points under their work experience that just say like, I did X, Y, and Z. And it's like, no one really cares what you did. They care what impact it had, or I shouldn't say they don't care. They care more about the impact it had on like the business. So like, for example, if you were a mentor at your previous job to interns, you wouldn't just want to say like, oh, mentored four interns. It's like, okay, but so what? It's like mentored four interns to get them onboarded quickly and contributing in their first month. Something like that to showcase that like, hey, this is the impact I actually had on the business. Yeah, absolutely. The other thing that I that I look for a lot when I'm reviewing resumes is how are people showing me that they're actually excited about the role that they're applying for? And, and one of the ways that, that a lot of people do that 
especially in the software industry, like it's also a hobby for them, right? Like these are people who are, they're nerds about it to a degree, right? Like they're going out and finding open source projects to contribute to and, and stuff like that. Like relevant experience doesn't have to be relevant work experience. And I've hired people who are very successful here at 1Password who their past experience, the thing that I hired them for was the fact that they contributed to some projects that we were using. And it was like, look, this is this is amazing. Like we've actually we actually have this person's work already in our apps. Like how cool is this? Or, you know, they've affected change in in key parts of, of a project. But that's that's something that that excitement level I look for as well. Yeah, I just I actually want to challenge that paradigm because I agree that, you know, people who are passionate, people who actually care and have a strong why will be more successful. However, many people do not have the luxury of spare time to contribute to open source or to do all these hobbies. Like I personally, I hate doing like development work in my spare time. I I, I love tech, but it's a job. And honestly, if I didn't need to, I wouldn't be working in it the way that I currently am. I would be a teacher, for example. Many people don't have the luxury of free time, especially those who are, you know, they have families, they're taking care of sick relatives, they have to work two jobs. And especially if they're self-taught and they don't do things during the day, like if they're not coding during the day. So I would say, yes, it's great if people can do it as a hobby, but just don't look past those who don't because they could still be extremely motivated and great contributors. And I don't want you to miss out on any great candidates. Yeah, no, that's that's a absolutely. I, I completely agree with that. All right. So let's jump ahead. We're past the application process. You've landed the interview. What are some things that folks can do to prepare and stand out in the interview process? So I think the biggest thing that I learned is cramming the day before an interview is the most stressful way to approach it. However, that being said, I've always been in a very fortunate position where I was never laid off. I always had the luxury of interviewing on my own timeline. If you have that luxury, take advantage of it and and don't Stress yourself out by bulk studying the night before an interview, because while technically it is effective from a short-term memory perspective and you can, you feel like you've learned information, you're, you're essentially just regurgitating it. It's not stored in your long-term memory and you're going to forget those things. It's, it's much better to study over a long period of time, to use context switching as a, a learning method. The harder something is to recall, the easier you're going to be able to recall it moving forward. That's kind of how like our brains process information. And that's why context switching is so great. It's like, don't just focus four hours straight on algorithms. Do algorithms for 30 minutes, then switch to data structures for 30 minutes, then come back to algorithms, like switch it up. It's going to be really difficult and frustrating, but that's the best way to learn over a long period of time. Just also take the interview one step at a time. I see a lot of candidates, and this used to be myself included, would just jump straight into coding, not evaluate different solutions or options and pick the the one that's maybe most appropriate. So evaluate a few different options and solutions, pick the one you're most comfortable executing. And that's an important note. It doesn't have to be the most efficient one straight out of the gate. But if you know it's not an efficient solution, you just say so. So like if you're looking for an item in an array and you know that you can use two nested for loops to like compare every item against every other item, that's bubble sort. That's O of N squared. It's not efficient, but it works. And you can say, hey, I know this is not efficient. I'm going to go this way so I get a working solution and I'll come back and refactor it to merge sort later or something. You don't need to name drop those algorithms. So pick the one you're most comfortable with because there's nothing worse than not even getting a working solution. It's almost better to get a working solution knowing it's not efficient and stating that and coming back and refactoring it. And if you don't know something, if you get stuck, ask. That's my main advice. I think this leads into this next one, but what's the number one mistake technical folks make during an interview? I think not asking any questions. 
It's like, you know, you hear a question, you're super excited about it, you want to get started, and you don't take the time to think through, do I have all the information I need to solve this? If not, what questions do I need to ask to get that information? Because these questions are typically left a little bit vague so that interviewers can see how you problem solve and if you can ask questions. So I would say don't just jump straight into coding. Take like five minutes, like write down all the things that you know or like what, what you don't know. Ask questions. You're meant to be asking questions. And if you don't know something, don't pretend like you do because that is a huge red flag to me. I wouldn't want to work with someone who acts as if they know the answer to something, even when they don't. Like, if you don't know, just say it, you know? Like, there's no harm in saying, like, you know what? I actually don't know what a promise is, but, you know, if I had to kind of, like, give my best guess, this is what I would say. Do you think that there's, like, a a mental shift that technical interviewees need to put themselves into? And what I mean by that is, do you think that currently interviews are viewed, or do you think that most people view an interview as an antagonistic relationship as opposed to one where the interviewer wants you to succeed? Like, do you think that that's a, that's a mindset shift that people should put themselves in? I think that's unfortunately a mind shift that people put themselves in that shouldn't be the case. I think honestly, well, this is just my personal opinion, but I think all of us were traumatized hearing about like Google brain teasers back in the day. And we just make the unconscious association that all interviews are going to be like that. And some of them still are. So I wish it wasn't the case that we have this antagonistic relationship, but I think just due to the history of how interviews have been run in the past, it's kind of still propagating today to that mindset, but I would love to change that. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot of anxiety that comes with applying for a new role. Do you have advice for how to ease that and build some confidence prior to the interview? I think you just need to recognize that everyone struggles with interviews. Everyone goes through the anxiety. It doesn't matter how much experience you have. Like even if you have experience, you can still get rejected for a role that you're perfectly qualified for. And I think you shouldn't compare yourself to the other candidates, but compare yourself to yourself. And maybe you need to do a retrospective after your interviews that didn't end well or ones that did and evaluate what areas did you feel confident in and what areas did you feel a little bit overwhelmed when you were discussing them and improve those ones. And if you're an interviewer out there listening and you are a native English speaker conducting interviews in English to non-native English speaking candidates, please be aware that is their second language. So on top of the fact that they're stressed about technical knowledge, they're probably also stressed about speaking your language. Um, I think I have more advice for the interviewers out there than I do for the interviewees, because honestly, like to a large extent, the power is being held by one party, which is the interviewer. It's supposed to be a two-way conversation. It's supposed to be a two-way interview, but the reality of it is there's only one party that's really asking the majority of the questions here. So yeah, I just kind of remember that everyone goes through these rejections and that if a process is done correctly, if an interview process is, is correctly done, it should feel more like a collaboration and that should actually be enjoyable for, for you as a candidate. So yeah, yeah, for sure. All right. Lastly, where can people go to find out a little bit more about you, buy your book, stay up to date with with the things that are going on with the podcast and, and anything else? So I'm definitely the most active on Twitter. It's a combination of like memes and me posting about life in Sweden and cat photos and sometimes about how I cry into my cereal at night when I'm overwhelmed. But that's definitely the place to find me. I keep it real over there. But for the book, if you're interested, it's technicalinterviews.dev. 
Yeah. And, and we're looking to expand that out. So right now it's just like an ebook, but we are looking at, you know, expanding it to a full course and, and making it a printed book and all of those things. Super cool. Well, best of luck, Emma. It was great having you today. Thanks so much. Yeah. Thanks for having me. All right. So we had a question this week that I thought was pretty good that we should take. This is from Astrian Zhang on Twitter. They asked, I know 1Password has a time-based two-factor authentication generator, but I am wondering if it is secure to store both your password and your two-factor authentication token in the same vault. Is it necessary to put a two-factor authentication token into a different 1Password vault or even choose another tool to store them? This is a great question. We get this a lot. So for those that don't know, websites that have two-factor authentication, one of the manners in which they enable that is through these six-digit codes that refresh every 30 seconds, right? Your device, if you have one of these set up in 1Password, you can watch the little countdown timer go, and you get a new password every six seconds called a one-time password. And it's meant to be another factor of authentication on top of your username and password. If you store them in one password, like one password itself can fill all three pieces of information into a website. It's very, it's very convenient. And a lot of people say, well, you shouldn't keep that second factor of authentication alongside your password in one password because it weakens the point of that two-factor authentication. And I think that that's true, assuming that your threat model includes people getting access to your 1Password data. Like if you are concerned that someone is going to get into your 1Password accounts and then get into your data there, which in terms of like, you know, 1Password is not susceptible to brute force attacks. It's it's just, it's mathematically infeasible given the way that we've designed the encryption. If your threat model includes that, then yes, like you should keep your second factor authentication token, your code on another device that's separate from your computer and your normal phone and and it's not connected to the internet and everything else. Otherwise, it is perfectly safe. Like I store all of mine in one password because my threat model doesn't include those things. So for me, like it's it's a convenience thing, but it's also an additional security thing because if someone were to get a hold of my password for a particular service that has two-factor authentication enabled, they would have my username, they'd have my password, but they probably wouldn't have the two-factor authentication secret that is that last step that would be needed to get into that account. And it does provide that extra security. Only 1Password has that two-factor authentication secret that generates that six-digit code. So yes, I would say for most people, this is perfectly safe to do. And if it's not something that's safe for you to do, you probably already know that and have made other accommodations for yourself. Perfect. How was that? That is great advice, Ru. Well, thanks. (laughs) That didn't sound sincere, did it? (laughs) Wow. (laughs) All right. I think it is time for some three-word passwords. Now, you haven't got help this week. No help. Isn't it? There's no one to... It's just me. It's just you. Yep. So three-word password is... Uh, well, it is the single worst way to share a password uh, because it does take about six minutes and is only a three-word password. <laughs> so um, <laughs> We use cryptic clues to guess the three mystery words created by our memorable password generator. And I, I only pressed it twice this time, so you oh, know... Wow. When I only press it twice, that it's it's going to be a bit of a tough one. All right, here we go. The first word. From Latin meaning thread, it's found in animal and plant structures, but also in modern terms, it's a conducting wire with a high melting point forming part of incandescent lighting and a universal term for spools of material for 3D printers. Uh, this word is filament. Absolutely right. I'm sorry if you can hear the uh, seagulls. <laughs> All right, so the next one. A term that is used across air and sea craft for a body or frame of a ship. 
It's common place name in the UK, US, and Canada. In the UK, it's known for having white telephone boxes over the standard red. I instantly get it from that. The term is also used in botany for an outer covering of seeds. Uh, this word is hull. Oh, you're on it today. All right. Also, I love that you were like, well, geez, the UK clue is the one that gives it away. And I was like, God, I don't know what the hell that one is, but I guess I'll get it from the other clues. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> All right. Okay. Third word. A form of musical articulation. In modern notation, it signifies a note of shortened durations separated from the note that may follow by silence. Can also be related to conversation consisting of series of short and separate sounds. Is this word staccato? You are instantly right on all oh three. Oh my god, I'm three for three! <laughs> I don't know whether it was just easier this week, whether I'm, I'm absolutely blown away. <laughs> Well, I feel great. That's a good way to start the day. I, I think that about wraps it up for this uh, week. This was great. A call back to the original incarnation of Random But Memorable. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, where it was probably a lot more random and less planned. Yeah, as we come to realize every time one of these happens, doing these without Anna is awful and and i don't want to do them very often yeah i feel like that nightmare where you have to talk in front of a group of people and they're all gonna laugh at you yeah you haven't prepared anything and there's seagulls being really loud outside and my wife is cutting up cardboard uh, possibly the loudest anybody could <laughs> just really having fun with it outside i can see the smile on her face when she's just going to town on these cardboard boxes outside <laughs> <laughs>